Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you're a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. I hope you all enjoyed the holiday weekend. Israel Policy Forum is committed to advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to ensure Israel's security and its Jewish and democratic future. Rosh Hashanah begins this Friday evening. And for all of those celebrating, I want to take this moment to wish you and your loved ones a Shana Tova, a happy and sweet new year. As we enter this season of renewal, I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the past 12 months. A lot has happened in 5780. In fact, that's an understatement. We as an organization face serious challenges to our vision of a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel. And now, even though annexation has nominally been suspended under the Abraham Accords, signed earlier today, signed just a few minutes ago, actually, in Washington, we are not dropping our guard. There's also the real strain imposed by the global public health crisis that we are all still living with. Remarkably, this has been a year of significant growth for Israel Policy Forum. When COVID-19 struck, Israel Policy Forum quickly transitioned to provide resources specially curated for remote learning. Since March, thousands have joined weekly video briefings like today's program, including the more than 2,000 people who participated in our special virtual event, The Road Ahead, back in June. Our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, has also expanded its reach. Since last September, it has been downloaded nearly 145,000 times, up from 59,000 in the preceding 12 months. Our most recent episode features a conversation with the Mitvim Institute's Gabi Mitchell on the gas crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean, an important development that has largely flown under the radar here in the U.S. If you're not already a listener, I encourage you to tune in on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or other major podcasting platforms. IPF Atid, our Young Professionals Program, continues to attract talented next-generation leaders active in the field of foreign policy and the American Jewish community. This past month, we welcomed two new members of our IPF Atid professional staff team, Dahlia Jude and Alex Letterman. We also recently recruited our third cohort of Charles Bronfman conveners, a highly accomplished and exceptionally intelligent group with participants ages 22 to 39, who receive intensive training on issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to make them better advocates for a viable two-state solution. Members of the next conveners class will not be announced until the end of September, but I'm pleased to share with you a little information about our impressive applicant pool. More than 75 people from 25 cities across North America applied. They include individuals from the fields of academia, government, entertainment, high tech, and the Jewish communal sphere. And we're so excited for you to meet them later this month. Finally, Israel Policy Forum also continues to be a key resource for policymakers and analysts. In February, we launched our new policy report, In Search of a Viable Option which was circulated among leading members of Congress and senior staff on Capitol Hill and covered in major media outlets. We've been continuing to provide resources in Washington through virtual engagement, working with 250 congressional offices since going remote in March. 
members of our professional staff are publishing commentary and analysis in leading outlets, including Evan Geisman in Haaretz and Shani Reichman in The Forward. Michael Koplow, our policy director, remains a highly sought after voice on all Israel related matters. In the past month alone, he's been quoted or cited in the Los Angeles Times, World Politics Review, The Hill, and The Times of Israel. His weekly column now reaches over 10,000 email subscribers every Thursday. If you're not among them, then you're missing out and I encourage you to sign up. Everything that I've just enumerated is a credit to your generosity. None of this success was presaged when the pandemic began and we remain keenly aware of the political and financial uncertainties ahead. So to all of our supporters on this program, thank you. If you view Israel Policy Forum as a vital resource, want to help ensure the success of our initiatives in the year ahead, and have not already done so, then I encourage you to make a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now on to today's program. Earlier this afternoon, leaders from Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain signed an agreement in Washington, normalizing relations between the three countries. This arrangement, dubbed the Abraham Accords by the Trump administration, is historic. The first such agreement between Israel and an Arab country in over a quarter of a century. But there are also lingering questions about its implementation. What do the Accords mean for the U.S. and Israeli security relations with the UAE and Bahrain? We are fortunate indeed to be joined by three special guests who will help to illuminate the Israeli, Palestinian, and American perspectives on these historic developments. Yoel Guzanski is a senior research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, specializing in Gulf politics and security. He was a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, an Israel Institute postdoctoral fellow, and a Fulbright scholar. He served on Israel's National Security Council in the Prime Minister's office and is currently a consultant to several ministries. Dr. Kuzanski has published in foreign affairs and foreign policy, as well as in numerous academic journals. His most recent book, Fraternal Enemies, Israel and the Gulf Monarchies, co-authored with Clive Jones, was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Daoud Kutab is a journalist and media activist, originally from Bethlehem. He's the former Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton University and currently serves as the Director General of Community Media Network, a nonprofit media organization dedicated to advancing independent media in the Arab region. Additionally, Daoud is a columnist for Al Monitor's Palestine Pulse and for Arab News. Dana Struhl is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Previously, she was a staff member for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee covering the Middle East and North Africa. Before working on Capitol Hill, Dana served in the Office of the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon, handling Middle East policy. She's also worked at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, the U.S. Institute of Peace, and at the National Democratic Institute of Gulf Affairs. With that, Yoel, Daoud, and Dana, thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. So I'm going to start with questions for each of you, and then uh, after we have some discussion, we'll get to the audience questions as well. Yoel, how would you describe the state of relations between Israel and countries like Bahrain and the UAE before the normalization agreements? 
how do these agreements signed today change things? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my first time uh, with you. Good night from Tel Aviv. Well, the pact uh, is formalizing, but also expanding nearly two decades of ties, tacit ties just below the surface of official relations between Israel and most, most of the Gulf countries, actually. Concerns over Iran, uncertainty over US strategy in the Middle East, Obama and Trump administrations, have brought many of the Gulf countries, the Arab Gulf countries towards commercial exchange, diplomatic engagement, and security coordination with Israel. These are the dimensions that will develop in the last, I would say, 20, 25 years. The tacit relation, those tacit relation, meant to strike a balance between addressing regional threats, uh, Turkey, Iran, and quell or pacify domestic pressures in those countries. Yoel, picking up on this, you mentioned in the New York Times that normalization could bring Israel into an Emirati-led anti-Turkish front. Could you elaborate on this? What are the ramifications for Israel's relations with states in the wider Middle East region? It puts Israel, uh, Israel is already in that camp. Uh, it doesn't really change the camps and alliances in the Middle East, but it's emphasizing and bring them to the surface. Uh, I don't think it's wise um, to do that. Uh, it's part of the agreement. There's no backing out of it, but it, uh, it's a finger in Turkey's eye. Like for the Emirates, it's a finger in Iranian eye, and Iran is furious. Uh, and perhaps we saw a lot of criticism, both, both from Turkey and Iran, uh, and perhaps we'll see some provocations. You have to understand Turkey sometimes even more than Iran, uh, as a representative of political Islam in the region, brought many countries to oppose and to create a bloc of Sunni moderate countries, including Israel, Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, while tiny Qatar joined uh, Turkey. Uh, and this, this battle is uh, going on in the Mediterranean, Unfortunately, the Eastern Mediterranean, this day, this conflict is, is perhaps it can burst any minute, intensified. And we saw even the UAE sending uh, jets uh, to Greece uh, last week. So um, I, I'm concerned that it might not help this, uh, this conflict in the, in the Mediterranean. Daoud? Uh, yeah. many, many Palestinians feel excluded from the process of Israeli normalization with these Gulf states. How have these developments impacted Palestinian perceptions of the Gulf Arab states? And what is the Palestinian public's read on the suspension of West Bank annexation stipulated under the Abraham Accords? How has this impacted things like the Palestinian Authority's suspension of security coordination and tax revenue transfers from Israel? Those are three questions. All right. Uh, <laughs> Want me to ask them in, in, in order or? or? <laughs> if you wish. Uh, I think that uh, um, this has uh, speeded up the um, national unity work that Palestinians have been fighting 
and together against. And this has kind of brought Palestinians together and it has uh, lessened those who depend on the Arab world and the Gulf countries to help end the occupation. So in a kind of a funny way, it has been very helpful to those Palestinians who've always thought that Abu Mazen's efforts uh, using just a diplomatic track uh, would ever end to a good result. Now, uh, your second question was about um, how do, I'm sorry, I forgot. Can you how, um What is the Palestinian public's read on the suspension of West Bank annexation that's stipulated in the Abraham Accords? You know, the problem that uh, we have is, uh, and we've had this a lot, is that the Israelis are really good at fabricating, creating a problem, and then asking people to give them credit for stopping it or solving it. The annexation has never been the problem. The problem has always been the occupation. And so by creating the annexation problem and then wanting to be paid, and they, you know, the Amer- Israelis wanted to be twice. First, they were paid on August, on July 1st, and then now they're paid again. So they keep selling used products that nobody really has, you know, wanted. But it's very funny. Uh, as I said, annexation has not been the problem. It's been the occupation. And uh, annexation has only been made possible because of the... Uh, Trump and uh, Jared Kushner so-called vision. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's fine that annexation is, is stopped, but it's never been about stopping annexation. It's always been about ending the occupation. And your third question? The third question is about um, how has this impacted things like the Palestinian Authority's suspension of security coordination with Israel, as well as tax revenue transfers from Israel? Um. That's actually a good, you know, a really good question because there is talk now that Palestinians should uh, drop their uh, opposition and and collect their own money. The problem has never been about the annexation only, but it's been that Israel wants to uh, deduct from the uh, money in addition to the three percent that they collect for uh, from they they deduct from the Palestinian revenues for handling the money. They also want to deduct uh, whatever they say is being paid in social security support to the families of Palestinian prisoners and martyrs. So that was a problem, not the annexation. Um, but, you know, there was talk that there might be somewhere because there's a law in Israel. And so there was talk about kind of making up for that by canceling the 3% or doing something like that. But um, there is some discussion about that. The Palestinians asked the Qataris for a loan of $100 million, and I don't think they've heard from them yet. And so, um, yes, it might, it might uh, allow uh, the Palestinians to, to climb down that tree that they climbed on this issue. But, yeah, that's not the problem again. <laughs> you know, that's a side issue. And uh, a lot will depend on what happens in, in the U.S. elections. No doubt about it, and I'm sure we'll get into that at some point as well. Dana, how did the lack of formal relations between Israel and U.S.-aligned Gulf Arab states impact American strategy in the Middle East, especially as it concerns Iran? And how could these new developments impact the viability of the Trump administration's peace to prosperity proposal or a more traditional two-state plan that could be put forward by a future American administration? 
Thanks so much for those great questions, Susie, and thanks to Israel Policy Forum for having me today. Um, so I first want to step back and paint the picture that today is a beginning, not an end, in terms of what the UAE and Bahrain and Israel decide to do um, with the Abraham Accords, whatever the content of these documents is, since we don't actually know yet. But taking a step back, in terms of U.S.-American strategic interests in the Middle, in the Middle East, um, the Gulf Arab states and Israel have been strategically aligned in perceiving the main threat, the main source of instability in the region to being Iran. And that's been the case, not just in the current administration, but in the previous administration. So there have already been extensive security and intelligence cooperation and contacts ongoing for many years. And in fact, a component of American arms sales, military exercises, consultations, intelligence sharing has been to encourage that under the table cooperation coordination. So the reason that these agreements between the UAE and Israel and then Bahrain could happen so fast is because it rests on a pretty extensive edifice of cooperation and sharing that has been going on for years and years. Bringing these relationships into the daylight on top of the table means that there can be more overt ties in the economic space, the agriculture space, tech, technology, entrepreneurship, uh, desalination, water, et cetera. All the other ways in which Israel and Arab states can demonstrate the benefits of normalizing ties. Um, but I do want to respond to something Dawood said earlier, which is that occupation is the problem. And I, and I acknowledge from the Palestinian perspective that occupation is the problem. But what we're seeing what's just happened now is that the Gulf Arab states are saying occupation is something we're going to address, but not at the expense of our own interests. And we see strategic interests and benefits for ourselves in normalizing relations and taking this relationship on top of the table and expanding it now. And for those of you who are able to tune in to the White House uh, statements from the leaders that attended and signed the Abraham Accords, what was noteworthy to me is that Prime Minister Netanyahu did not mention two states and did not mention Palestinians once. But if you listen to the Arab, to the Gulf Arab leaders, to the Emirati and the Bahraini foreign ministers, they took pains to make it very clear that the, the decision to normalize ties is not an abandonment of the Palestinian cause. And while that's certainly how it's very much perceived in the West Bank at this point in time, the, these leaders and these governments, I think, are going to be making efforts to demonstrate that the Palestinian situation and resolution toward a two-state outcome is still a priority. Um, Yoel, thank you, Donna. Dana. Um, Yoel, I'd like to come back to the Israeli outlook on this. Israel's about to head into a three-week lockdown beginning Friday because of coronavirus. And we know that Israel now has the world's highest rate of new coronavirus infections per capita. How do Israelis view the prime minister and his family's presence at this signing ceremony today, considering the circumstances back home? Depend which Israeli uh, you ask. Every Israeli at least have nine different uh, opinions. But it's, it's interesting to see that uh, uh, most of the objections to, to the accords come from the Israeli left. Um, because, uh, I can assume, because it's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, under Benjamin Netanyahu, it's under Trump, and it doesn't include the, the Palestinian. These are, I guess, the motivations of, uh, of the Israeli public. There's, uh, uh, 
there's a, the, the atmosphere in Israel is not pretty good right now, as you mentioned, because of the COVID, because of the, of the corona. And I'm sure without the corona, this will celebrate uh, much, much, much larger than, than, uh, than what uh, we saw. Even during the ceremony, which I saw live here on TV, we had rocket launchers uh, from, from Gaza to a lot of cities in the south of Israel. Just a reminder that there is a ceremony in Washington, but the reality here in Israel uh, is quite different. Yoel, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has traditionally leaned on his foreign policy chops in presenting himself as Israel's master diplomat to voters. With Israel widely expected to go to elections sometime in the next year, will he be able to do the same with the UAE and Bahrain deals? Um, can, you, can, you ask, can you repeat the question? Yeah. And the, the, basically, will, will, will Netanyahu be able to use this, these deals, these Abraham Accords with the UAE mm-hmm. and Bahrain when he goes to re-election, trying to yet again convince the Israeli voting public that uh, he's the only one who can handle foreign right. policy in a way that, that inures to Israel's interests? When I was too naive, perhaps, I, I thought I can avoid uh, going into Israeli politics. But I'll dive in and I'll try to answer uh, your question. Of course, he'll use it uh, in the coming election. This is why he went alone. It didn't take his uh, foreign minister. Uh, to be honest, uh, he's the one in charge, good or bad. He's the one who brought this, not uh not Kacholavan, not Benny Gantz or Gabi Ashkenazi, who just joined a few months. Uh, he didn't even show them, uh, as, as far as I know. Uh, perhaps Benny, Benny saw the agreement, but I'm not sure Gabi saw the agreement. Uh, so he, he wants to take all credit. Uh, I think he deserves it. I mean, he, good or bad. I mean, I, th- I don't think disagreements are perfect. There's pros and cons that we can talk about later on if you want. Uh, But certainly he will use it as he did in the past. Dana, while we're discussing potential obstacles to this process, there's also the prospect for some controversy between the United States, Israel, and the UAE over the sale of F-35 stealth fighter jets. Well, we do know the Trump administration promised the Emiratis uh, where does the Israeli security establishment stand and how could this play out in Congress? That's a really great question. So first of all, just, just a note of historical context. When Egypt signed a peace agreement with Israel and then when Jordan signed a peace agreement with Israel, the United States provided sweeteners in both cases. For Egypt, it was a commitment for U.S. military aid that continues to this day. For Jordan at the time, it was bilateral debt relief in the sale of F-16 fighter jets. Both Egypt and Jordan have continued to receive U.S. arms sales and U.S. military financing, and in many cases, economic financing as well. And both of those countries receive it with bipartisan support. And a key area of strategic continuity in that bipartisan support is both governments' commitments to the peace treaties with Israel, even though they're what's normally described as as a cold peace, since there's not extensive ties between the two peoples, between the Jordanian and the Egyptian peoples and the Israeli people. That being said, there's a lot that's very unprecedented about the current case, which is that 
there appears to be a commitment by the Trump administration to sell the F-35, as Susie said, stealth fighter jet to the UAE, who's been very clear in public. Um, the crown prince of UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed, has been clear for years that he desires to buy the F-35. Um, and since we were talking about Turkey earlier, just a reminder to everybody listening that Turkey has been removed from the F-35 supply group because of its acquisition of um, missile interceptors from Russia. So the, the F-35 is something that is the most expensive procurement program for the, for the Pentagon, for our Department of Defense, period, number one. And number two, it is such an advanced fighter jet. In many ways, it'll change the way air wars are fought in the future. So when the United States makes a decision to sell this kind of weapons platform to any government, it should be very confident in that strategic partnership. And at this point in time, Israel is the only country in the Middle East that has been authorized to purchase and operate the F-35 fighter jet. Now, no executive branch, no White House, regardless of party, can just sell any weapon system anywhere, not in the Middle East, not anywhere in the world. First, a congressional notification process has to occur. And in the case of sophisticated weapons in the Middle East, it's not just a decision of Congress giving the green light to a weapon sale. There's also legally binding requirements to demonstrate that Israel's military superiority, otherwise known as qualitative military edge or QME, is going to be protected. And the United States has successfully, through an extensive process of technical consultations, been able to sell sophisticated weapons to Gulf Arab states in the past, but only after very extensive technical negotiations and assurances that Israel's military superiority is protected. And in this case, it seems that the consent or green light given to to the UAE to purchase these F-35s was not necessarily vetted through Israeli security institutions, which is why you're seeing this pretty messy public discourse about did Prime Minister Netanyahu agree? Did he consent? Maybe not. Maybe he'll go to Congress, et cetera. And what hasn't happened yet is a formal notification to Congress where the Trump administration says we want to sell this. And then Congress has a period of time during which it can conduct oversight, hold hearings, ask questions, et cetera. And at that point in time, members of Congress are likely going to want to hear from members of the Israeli government about whether or not they feel confident that their military superiority is protected given the sale. And I'll also just say going forward, I think a difficult question here that needs to be answered is if normalization is the trend and other governments in the region would like to jump on the normalization train and the expectation is now that you get access to ever more sophisticated U.S. weapons as part of the deliverable for normalizing relations with Israel, there are very serious questions both for Israel's qualitative military edge and for the U.S. role in in continuing to sell ever more um, in sophisticated in quality and in numbers quantity of arms sales to others in the region. And again, despite the peace agreements today, all of the deadly conflicts in the region continue, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Syria, whether it's Yemen, whether it's Libya, nothing about the mass numbers of people that are dying um, from weapons, from civilian casualties, from civil conflict is going to change as a result of these agreements. And yet it appears that the United States is willing to continue to sell weapons as as the price for normalizing relations with Israel. So I think there's a lot of national security and regional implications that have yet to be addressed. And we're going to see those questions come up with members of Congress. And I'd just like to ask, thank you, Dana. That's really uh, very instructive. 
Um, I want to ask Yoel and Daoud uh, if you have thoughts about normalization beginning a trend of basically an arms race in the Middle East and what the implications would be for Israeli security, for Palestinian security, et cetera, in the coming years. Do you I'm, I'm worried. Daoud? I'm worried about that. Uh, and I agree with what Dana uh, said, I'm worried not just about just about Israel QME being eroded. Uh, it's a process that's it's taking for for several years now. Israel Israel turned a blind eye, uh, and there's a lot of American pressure on Israel to sell uh, those kinds of weapon. Even before the F-35, all kinds of sophisticated American weapon find itself to the Saudis, to the Emiratis, who wage war in 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 several arenas. Uh, now in the Middle East. I'm not just afraid of the QME, I'm afraid of an arms race in the Middle East because uh, the Saudis will look at the Emiratis and say, hey, we want the same thing. Now the Qataris will want the same systems. Uh, we, we can have a domino effect uh, in the region and it, everything is in light of the uh, ending of the embargo on Iran. So we're looking at the regional arms race taking a very negative momentum. Absolutely. Daoud, do you have anything to add on that particular point? Not much, no. Okay. So, Dana, I have a follow-up for you, and then, Daoud, I'm going to turn to you next with a different question. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this is all going to play into the presidential election? We're obviously 50-something days away from, from our November elections. What would a Biden or Trump victory mean for the F-35 issue? Great question. So I certainly think that political timelines and considerations played into this deal, um, both in Jerusalem and in Washington, and also probably in the Gulf, because there um, is recognition that it's not clear that Trump will win re-election. And members of the Biden campaign have been pretty clear that they also in some ways share views on the right that the United States has been overly invested in the Middle East or overly invested, at least from a military perspective, and that some rebalancing is in order. You're not going to hear much disagreement, at least as I don't speak for the Biden campaign, in, in the notion that the main strategic threat to the United States is great power competition, Russia and China and too much of, of American focus has been in the Middle East. Um, so against that backdrop, I think there's recognition in some Arab capitals that if there is a desire for these very sophisticated weapon systems like arms drones or the F-35, now is the time to secure that American commitment, especially not only because Trump's party controls the White House, but also the Senate. Um, and members of Congress have been very active um, and expressing views about U.S. national security and U.S. arms sales policies. But because right now Democrats control the House of Representatives and Republicans control the Senate, it's very unlikely that Congress is going to act with a unified voice and prevent the Trump administration from achieving whatever its goals are in the national security space. So what, what ultimately happens, I think, in this situation is that in a, in a scenario in which there's a second Trump term, um, the bandwagoning effect continues where countries in the region recognize that they are going to be able to access ever more sophisticated arms, as Yoel said, and that there's going to be a willing partner in the White House to, to basically work through Congress with Congress in support of continuing these arms sales. 
and whatever the negotiations are with Israel about its qualitative military edge will, will be figured out as well. On the Biden side, members of the Biden campaign have been very clear that they support widening the circle of peace. So UAE, Israel normalization, Bahrain, Israel normalization, and other countries in the region that choose to normalize relations with Israel will certainly be welcomed. But whether or not that welcoming will be accompanied by rapid and deep support for U.S. arms sales, I think is totally a separate a separate case. And you're going to see a Biden administration want to take a closer look at the technical details and the mechanics of that, not just as it relates bilaterally to Israel, but a much wider regional context. Yoel, you wanted to add something? No, I'm, I'm totally agree. I just want to emphasize uh, what Dana says. First of all, there's a fear in the Arab, in the Arabian Gulf, uh, about Trump not being elected again. Uh, I think they want to see. They won't say it, of course, out loud. I think most of them. I think Netanyahu wants to, to Trump be reelected. Uh, in in the Gulf states, especially in Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, when Trump um, really laid on the fence and helping Mohammed bin Salman avoiding some of the repercussions of of uh, his uh, actions, uh, so they want Trump to be reelected. They don't want to see a democratic administration. As far as I understand it, they fear of Biden being soft on Iran on the one hand and, let's say, uh, hard on them, especially on human rights and all kinds of issues like the war in Yemen, the war uh, in Libya, not authorizing those weapons deals, et cetera, et cetera. Dana? I, I just want to add a, a different perspective to this. I think that there's probably some trepidation that a Biden administration would not provide the blank check of, as long as you do what we want, Washington, on a transactional basis, we're going to be quiet on issues that concern us inside your domestic space, whether it's human rights, crackdown on civil society, fundamental freedom of expression type issues. On the other hand, I don't think the Trump administration is perceived to really back up its commitments to both Arab partners in the case of Iran. So we have witnessed during the Trump administration a massive attack on Saudi Aramco facilities. We've seen um, aggression in the Persian Gulf and in maritime space, et cetera. And I think what concerns these capitals most is actually the wild unpredictability of whether it's a Democratic administration or Republican administration, Washington increasingly shows up as a government that because of the swings in our own governance structures and what that means for how our politics drives our policy that we cannot be relied on. And I think that's another driver for why we got to the Abraham Accords today and why Bahrain was ready to so quickly jump on the normalization bandwagon because Israel's in the region to stay, and many of the threats are shared from the perception of the governments. The, the, the strategic threat picture is very similar, and Washington is perceived as unreliable. Now, I just want to add, I think there is concern that a Biden administration would be more vocal on what it views as actions that are destabilizing in the region caused or by the decision-making of these governments. On the other hand, the manner in which President Trump has has received many of the leaders in this region holding up bar charts about how much money they spend, talking in such transactional terms, um, et cetera, I think is not very well received either. So I, I see it just a little bit more of a nuanced way. Daoud, 
Uh, the Arab League recently rejected a Palestinian-initiated resolution to condemn the Israel-UAE deal. Is there any potential for the Palestinians to soften their position? What happens if they do or don't? Well, no, I, I think the Arab uh, countries uh, are divided and uh, they're very selfish. Everybody's trying to find solutions for themselves. And, you know, and maybe in a normal situation, you'd understand that countries care about their own interests. And what the discussion you just had shows that that's the basic issue of the normalization. It's not about Palestine and it, it wasn't done to stop the annexation. That was a facade that just to cover a fig leaf. The reason was, as you said, the arms race, Iran, uh, other issues are the real reason for the normalization. Now, I think the problem is that the Israelis uh, are not looking at uh, the long term. They're looking at the short term. They're, you know, clapping their hands for, you know, a country with 1.4 million people and in, in, in nationals in UAE, half a million in Bahrain. The Arab world is 423 million. So you're talking about 0.03% of the Arab world. So my, my real fear and my worry to uh, people listening to Israelis, to Americans, to American Jews, is that uh, Mahmoud Abbas is 84 years. He's going to pass on soon. And Israel will never find anybody as moderate as Mahmoud Abbas. There is going to be a day when they will say, Oh, I wish Mahmoud Abbas is back. And that's a shame. It's a shame for Israel. It's a shame for Palestinians. And I think uh, what we're seeing today is it's, it's sad, not because, uh, you know, Arabs have been betraying the Palestinians. That's fine. Okay, let's put that on the side. But it's because people are really believing in the facade that, the, you know, that there's peace between Israel and Arabs, you know. UAE has not been at war with Israel or Bahrain. So that's all you know, a joke, it's a facade. It's not really about the conflict. The conflict is about occupation, it's about land, it's about rights of people. And that has not changed, will not change, no matter if every Arab country normalizes relations. Normal relations is actually a good thing. I mean, I think normalizing is a good thing, but you don't reward bad behavior. You know, Israel is a bad country. Uh, the Netanyahu government is a pariah state. They're actually violating international law. And most countries in the world, like North Korea and others, when they break international law, you isolate them. But here, you know, they're being rewarded. How, you know, it's like an addict that's been given money to keep buying stuff to stay, to stay on, on the drugs and stay addicted, you know? What Israel needs, what we all need, is somebody to go call Turkey and to stop this, uh, in, in, you know, giving them money and enabling them to continue to occupy somebody else's land by force to build uh, settlements against international law, to flaunt uh, the International Criminal Court, and to think, oh, you know, now there's a few Arabs and everybody's clapping for us at the White House, everything is fine. Well, it's not fine. And I think it's a mistaken uh, feeling that the Israelis are giving themselves, that they're clapping themselves on the back, and they don't understand that this is not going to bring about peace. And it's not just the Israelis, it's also, who needs peace more than the Palestinians? Nobody in the world needs peace more than the Palestinians. But Israelis has to have some basis, has to have some some uh, structure, some basis. You know, peace for peace. Okay, that sounds nice. You know, but you have occupation, you have settlements, 
you have a daily violation of people's human rights. You have four times as much house demolitions just in the last four months. I mean, it's so sick that they use the coronavirus to increase the number of houses being demolished in Jerusalem to kind of fulfill the vision of Trump. I'm really sorry that uh, for us as Palestinians, for the Israelis, that we've been fooled and they've been fooled by this facade of peace. Okay, everybody clapped, everybody's happy at the White House, but nobody's happy in Nablus. And I hope, I don't think anybody's happy even in Tel Aviv or in, you know, in Netanya or in even south of Israel. It's not going to be peaceful. And you saw, you know, Hamas shot a rocket that, that kind of... Uh, broke the peace that they've had with the, with the Israeli government. It's not going to end in a nice way. And I'm really sad. I'm really sad for this day. Um, I'm going to turn to some audience questions, although believe me, I could, could go on asking all of you follow-up questions, but I want to get our audience in on this. Um, and as a reminder to our audience, if you have a question, please type it in the Q&A box and we'll get to as many as we can. Uh, so, uh, there are several people who have asked about what this could mean for reestablishing the peace process between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, and I'm just going to try to get to uh, several of them. David Cohen asks, what is the potential for normalization with Arab states to encourage the peace process between Israel and, Pal and the Palestinians? For example, settlers and the head of Meretz have indicated that normalization has de facto frozen the planning for settlement expansion since last February. And then uh, further questions, Avi Poster along similar lines, will the presence of an Arab diplomatic corps in Israel and improved relations not have a positive watchdog impact on how Israel treats Palestinians as well as possible peace and the halting of annexation? Uh, and third, what Jerome uh, Siegel, what is the potential for normalization with, oh, I'm sorry, I, I asked that question. Um, so, okay, you get it. Um, oh, then one more. Um, what can, should the Palestinian, well, I'll, I'll wait, Matt, those two. So they're asking, is there some positive benefit to the exchange of diplomatic relations with these Gulf states and the possibility that somehow this will inject some sort of force to uh, to advance the peace process between Israelis and Palestinians. Yo, who wants to start? Yoel, and then I'm sure Dawood, you have thoughts, and maybe Dana as well. Yoel. I'll be, I'll try to be optimistic. The, the cap, the cup half full, I think the agreement makes it easier for other Arab countries to move forward with normalization. Normalization with Israel, is not a bad thing. Uh, it's not that, that everything was great with the Palestinians. Um, uh, I think the deals weakens the ideals set out by the Arab Peace Initiative, the Palestinian state before normalization. I hope, I really hope, and I think uh, it can happen that actually the pressure of more and more Arab countries, and President Trump mentioned five other Arab countries are negotiating right now the term, by the way, they negotiate with the US, not with Israel. Everybody has its own wish list, what he wants from the US. The Sudanese wants this, uh, the Omanis wants that. Um, each has its own interest and consideration. 
the UAE and Bahraini uh, agreements are like a trial balloon. If, uh, if you looked at the Arab League uh, gathering just three days ago, uh, yes, the PA won a renewed support for statehood, but there was no condemnation uh, to the UAE uh, move. Uh, Arab states are worried with Iran and Turkey, not with the Palestinians, and they, and they find a common goal uh, with Israel. It's hard to predict which country will be next. Uh, there's an, Amer uh, an immense American pressure, nothing that I've seen in my lifetime. A lot of American pressure, Pompeo was here, Kushner was here uh, just uh, last week. Not just pressure, but also carrots. Uh, the Americans are promising a lot to some of those countries, not just in the Gulf, but in Africa, even in Europe now. So it's a question of uh, when and in what cost other countries will join. Toad? Well, you know, it's fine. Okay. Uh, Arab countries, they're making a normalization. Uh, Yale thinks it's going to improve the chances of peace. It's possible. If there, was a, if there was a leadership in Israel that really was interested in peace, I would say yes. But do you really think Netanyahu is interested in peace? Any of you think that Netanyahu really wants peace? No, he doesn't want peace. He wants to stay out of prison. That's all he cares about. And he will you know, do whatever he did. Just like Trump wants to win elections, he will do whatever it costs. And Netanyahu is going to do whatever it costs to stay out of prison. He's not interested in peace. So if he's not interested in peace, then... You know, again, rewarding the bad guy, people who are doing bad things, is not a good thing. It's a very bad omen. So I, okay, there will be more countries, maybe yes, maybe no. A lot will depend on who wins the elections, and therefore the pressure will, will might, might go down, might stay up, because if, even if Trump loses, he'll still be in office, and maybe he'll be able to offer a few more carrots, as uh, Yael said, it's possible. Uh, Morocco wants uh, to be recognized to recognize the Western Sahara. The Sudan wants to be lifted from the uh, anti-terrorism list. You know, it reminds me of 1947 when uh, Latin American countries' arms were twisted at the UN to recognize the partition plan. That's not how you bring peace. Okay, you know, you'll get whatever you need. You'll pressure countries. You'll bribe countries to do whatever you want, but it's not going to bring peace. So. Um, you know, I'm sorry to be the kind of uh, throwing uh, water at the parade, but I just don't see it being a successful event. For so peace. Have, thank you. We have a question from Lara Jakes. Uh, earlier today, Secretary of State Pompeo was speaking uh, to another a think tank and said, he, quote, the primary destabilizing force in the Middle East was not the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, but rather the threat posed by the extraterritorial ambitions of the clerical regime in Iran. It seemed a sort of binary analysis and one that might not be shared by other Arab states in the Mideast or Muslim countries in North Africa. Uh, so Lara's asking, Dana, if you could elaborate on your opening remarks by discussing whether this sort of either-or diplomacy might determine whether places like Sudan, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, etc., might themselves seek normalization with Israel um, and any other perspectives that others have? So first of all, I think it's much more complicated than a binary decision, but I do think for a very, for, for a while now preceding the Trump administration, 
there has been a convergence among Israel and most countries in the Middle East that the major source of destabilization and threat to security, both Israel's security and Gulf Arab security, is Iran. Um, and not just the pursuit of nuclear weapons, but the support for terrorism and development of proxies and militias in Syria and Iraq, in Lebanon, etc. So I think that has been uh, widely accepted for a while that, that, that Iran and, and its extraterritorial ambitions have been the main driver of destabilization and, and insecurity in the region. Um, but in terms of what other countries may consider going forward, I, I agree with you, Elle, Every every government has its wish list, and a lot of its wish list is not what Israel can provide, but what the United States can provide. And so the question is, how many of these negotiations can the Trump administration do? The president very clearly wants the political wins of being the great peacemaker um, of this decade or this century. But as we've seen even today, the fact that we don't have the text of these agreements shows that they're being rushed, that it's taking a long time, or that it should take a long time, and we don't know the content yet. And we've already seen confusion about things like language over access to Al-Aqsa Mosque, regardless of whether there was intentionality in the confusion of that language. Those are the sorts of miscommunications or misperceptions that you want to avoid when you're rolling out such big initiatives like this. Um, So I think, number one, it's about the bandwidth of the Trump administration and whether or not they're going to stop at big public statements or whether they're going to do the actual hard diplomatic work of addressing in a responsible way that is both the reinforcing of U.S. national security and and regional stability and Israel's security, each of these these different agreements. And I just want to return to the question of um, whether or not the um, normalizing with other countries can can bring about a two-state solution. So I don't know about a two-state solution, and I certainly don't know what is in uh, Netanyahu's view in terms of whether or not he actually desires peace. But many countries and many leaders do things that they don't necessarily desire because they see it as advantageous to them. And I do think over time, as I said earlier, today is a beginning. It's not the end. And as economic ties and as the mutual benefits of normalizing with Israel become more clear, it's possible that these governments in the region gain some leverage to be more vocal about the day-to-day challenges and and indignities about the Palestinians in the West Bank. So not only can these governments use their expanding ties across the Israeli government to raise issues of concern with Israeli policies in the West Bank and Gaza publicly and privately, they can also decide to advocate for specific actions that could improve conditions in the West Bank. And a good example would be um, construct Palestinian construction in Area C of the West Bank. So these are examples where going forward, it's up to the governments in the region who have made the decision to normalize to now prioritize the Palestinian issue. And we don't know whether or not they're going to do that yet. Yoel and Daoud, if you want to chime in here. I wanted to add something about Saudi Arabia, because uh, you asked who, who might be next, and people talk about Saudi Arabia, but I think Saudi Arabia prefers for now to superb uh, this from the outside. Uh, we've seen it in Saudi, uh, in Saudi media uh, outlets. We saw them prov- providing uh, Israel uh, flights over their territory. Um, 
for Saudi Arabia, I think the, the big question is the payment, what it will get in return, uh, mainly from the U.S. In, in Saudi Arabia, the situation is much more complex than in the UAE. Many, many sensitivities. Uh, the religious uh, establishment is still strong, although MBS did curtail uh, some of its uh, forces from before. Uh, uh, MBS uh, position inside the palace is not yet clear, is not yet consolidated is, is power and it doesn't have a lot of legitis, legitimacy, especially the amount he wants it. Uh, this is a country, you're the custodian of, of holy places of Islam. It's very sensitive to its stature in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, very sensitive to any criticism, especially from Turkey and Iran. So they're waiting. I think uh, if you would ask me a week ago, I would say MBS will wait until his father was passed away, his father will die, and then he will do this move because his father is still more obligated to the Palestinian cause. It's an old generation. But, you know, as, as weeks and, and days goes by, I think it's only a matter of price for the Saudis, what they can get uh, from the Trump administration. And I'm not ruling out that they will join in, in, in a later stage Dao, do you have anything more? And I'm going to ask Dana one final question as well. But Dao, do you have anything to add to what we're talking about in terms of, um, you know, the, the possible ramifications of all this? Yeah, well, I think there is a lot to, to, um, to kind of absorb what happened. And I think, as I said in the beginning, I think Palestinians have to, uh, um, you know, stop and rethink where they are what they want, how they want to get it, and who do they want to lead them to reach that point. And that means we need to have elections very soon to answer these questions. Uh, do we still want a two-state solution? Do we want to um, seek a one-state solution where everybody has equal rights? Do we want to do it uh, using nonviolent protests? Do we want to find uh, other ways? Do we want to increase support for BDS? You know, now the BDS uh, in a way has gotten uh, bad and good news because uh, they now have two new countries to kind of boycott and at the same time BDS has been hurt because now Israel has two new countries that are uh, cooperating with them instead of boycotting them. So uh, all this is going to be new. Abu Mazen has been against BDS until recently but now I think he's changing his mind and saying I'm open to any idea. So I think Palestinians have a lot to on their plate to really think. Um, they really need to uh, to tone to really nail down the unity issue, and to resolve the Gaza problem, and um, to uh, really uh, put forward a strategy that is based on acceptable, moderate position that people in the world can accept. And uh, they need to have the public support them behind this. I think this is happening. We're starting to see more unity efforts. We saw a new leadership that was uh, re-established. I think you will soon see um, a movement on the reconciliation and we will have elections soon. So I think there will be many things that uh, will come out from the Palestinian point of view. But the key is going to, to be uh, what is the goal, what's the strategy, and who will lead us to this new strategy. And uh, I think in a kind of a 
bad or good way, the Emirates and the Bahrain has kind of speeded up that process of rethinking the Palestinian uh, resistance strategy or the liberation strategy, if you will. Dana, before you go, um, just to follow up on this whole discussion about could this be the beginning of an arms race in the Middle East with far-ranging consequences, uh, could a future Biden administration and or Congress block the sale of F-35s and other advanced weaponry? I mean, I understand that the timeline is not tomorrow, but the deliverables are sometime in the future. But what do you see as the options for a potentially a different administration or a Congress that is not so enamored of arming the Middle East? Sure. So first of all, just at a very broad level, I think we already are in an arms race in the Middle East. And it's not just the United States that's fueling that. Um, arms, arms sales are a main area of competition that bring with it influence and interaction with militaries. And that is the view in Beijing, China, in Moscow, Russia. There are other countries, including Israel, which actually has a pretty sophisticated defense industry as well. Turkey is another one, India, etc. So the United States is already competing with other countries to sell weapons. And with those weapon sales come long tails of, of assistance and training and maintenance on the equipment and opportunities for interaction between militaries and between industries. And the big risk going forward in the Middle East is that the United States would like to maintain its dominance, I believe, in the arms sale market. Um, but at the same time, the more the United States sales themselves, the more opportunities there are for other countries to steal our sensitive defense technology. And that's another aspect of the F-35 sale and a reason why Congress really twisted the arm of the Trump administration to stop the F-35 cooperation with Turkey because there was such fear of the Russians being able to compromise the integrity of that system. So going back to Congress, the reality is it's very, very hard for Congress to stop an arms sale. It would take two-thirds of the House of Representatives and two-thirds of the U.S. Senate voting together for a resolution of disapproval to block an arms sale. And the reason you need two-thirds in both chambers is because that could override a presidential veto. So the bottom line is it would be very for Congress to block an arms sale, particularly right now where Republicans control the Senate and Democrats control the House. In a Biden context, and I should also add that congressional approval or consent or oversight of an arms sale is just one step and a pretty extensive process. So after Congress gives the green light or fails to act to block that arms sale, that's when a lot of the contractual, specific, technical discussions would take place between the executive branch, the state and the defense department, between um, U.S. defense industry and between the buyer in the Middle East or anywhere else. So presumably in an administration other than the Trump administration, could the tone and the technical details of that negotiation change or the end use requirements put by the buyer of an arms sale become so onerous that a government says we're no longer interested in buying this system or this weapon? Yeah, it's, it's certainly possible. I also think that, again, if the makeup of Congress changes, you're just going to hear very different questions about selling the F-35 to the UAE, because it's not just about Israel and Israel's military 
edge. It's also about the U.S.-UAE relationship. And members of Congress have raised issues about the things that many of these governments don't like the Americans to raise questions about, whether it's human rights, whether it's the violation of arms embargo in Libya, whether it's actions that have led to civilian casualties in Yemen. These are all issues related to the UAE that will come up, and they will come up if Saudi Arabia tries to buy more sophisticated weapons. They'll come up in almost any context. So these are the very uncomfortable, inconvenient questions that right now Congress brings up and the Trump administration chooses really not to deal with. But in a Biden administration, presumably you'd have a more receptive national security team to having these conversations. And I know you need to go, uh, Yoel and Daoud, if you can stick around for a few more minutes because I have more questions. Thank you, Dana, very much for joining us. Uh, Daoud, could you talk for a minute about the Arab street in some of these countries. So for example, we know that in both the UAE and in Bahrain, to say that there isn't exactly freedom of speech would perhaps be an understatement or or freedom of the press. But Bahrain is also very different from even the UAE. I mean, Bahrain is a Sunni majority country that is led by a Shia uh, monarchy. I'm sorry. I I knew when I was saying it, I said it wrong. Sorry. It's a Shia majority country ruled by a Sunni regime. Um, And I further understand that in Bahrain, at least uh, the popular view of of normalization is not exactly how it was received in the UAE. Could you touch on this? And I'm sure, Yoel, you might have have something to add, but Daoud, if you would take that, I'd I'd really be interested to hear what you have to say. Well, first, the, the Emirates uh, is a richer country and um, it has less of the, uh, the Sunni Shiite divide that you mentioned in Bahrain. Um, the uh, Emirates has about a 10 million population with only 1.4 million of national uh, Emiratis. So, and it's divided into seven different islands or states or Emirates. And so you have different points of view even within that. But and there are opposition to the normalization, although it's not as vocal as it is in the Emirates in the Bahrain, because Bahrain has that Shiite opposition to the government. Um, I think in both the, uh, both the Emirates and Bahrain, there is going to be a lot uh, of opposition from the people. And I think you will see that more as the so-called fruits of peace that have always been promised after the Egyptian peace, after the Jordanian peace, that basically uh, didn't really uh, materialize. And so I think there will be, at a later stage, possibly um, um, a kind of a a retraction and and, and more people will oppose it. But they're both autocratic countries that are ruled by very tough security and intelligence service that uh, really is merciless. If you write... uh, Something on Facebook, you could spend two years or three years in jail just for writing a comment on Facebook. We had a, a, a Jordanian cartoonist who did a cartoon for a London-based Arabic newspaper, and the Emirates were so angry that the Jordanians had to imprison this guy. So you could imagine also the influence. Many Arab countries have their citizens working in Emirates and Bahrain, and so they're also vulnerable to, to uh, opposing these countries. And one of the reasons why the Arab League uh, countries did not vote against uh, the Emirates because Egypt, Palestine, Palestine Jordan, uh, Syria, Lebanon, the, uh, Algeria, they all have 
tens of thousands of people working in their country and they don't want to anger the, the rulers there and they could just kick out all their citizens who send a lot of money back home. And so um, you will not see a lot of public opposition for people living in these countries. You will see it more for expats living outside of these countries. In Bahrain, you will see, as you have seen yesterday, and today there's been a lot of protests and lots of signs and lots of uh, burning pictures of whatever and so on and supporting the Palestinians. And that will continue because also the Palestinians have been supporting the Bahrainis to, to have their right of freedom of expression. Um, and I think you'll see that in any country. And I think uh, the Emirati foreign minister who is fluent in English spoke in Arabic today after his opening remarks and that wasn't a coincidence. Mm -hmm. I think he wanted to, uh, to make sure that he's quoted in Arabic in all the Arab media so and television so that he can show that he supports Palestinians and so on. So all these things are signs of of how the, these rulers um, think about their own streets and how uh, they will gauge their response based on, on what will happen in the future. And they all insist that they're still supporting the Palestinians and they did this only to help the Palestinians. Bullshit. Sorry. Yoel, that was I, very I agree. illuminating. I agree, with, uh, I agree with what Dawood said and I want to add it's interesting, uh, one who, like myself, who looks at the Gulf for so many years, uh, if, you, if you look at the Gulf countries, in countries where you have more openness in the political system, uh, like Kuwait, like Bahrain, you'll see actually less support of normalization with Israel. Uh, Kuwait is very vocal against, and of course Bahrain, I'll say a something about Bahrain in a minute, even the UAE. A very serious uh, survey pool, uh, conducted by the Washington Institute uh, only two months ago, before the agreement was uh, pronounced, found that only 20% of Emiratis, citizens of course, only 20% of Emiratis support full normalization with Israel. Of course, no one in his bare mind will uh, uh, criticize MBZ now. No uh, Emirati citizens will do that. Uh, if, you, if you see uh, objection to the agreements, it's from Emiratis who live outside of the UAE, uh, mainly in Qatar and other places. Um, so this is an agreement, like former agreement between uh, Arab countries and Israel, uh, if you look at Egypt or Jordan, between the elites, not with the publics, this is an agreement between uh, the leading uh, uh, MBZ, with you know the leading authority, the elite, and uh, the government of Israel. I don't think um, it's uh, there's a lot of support uh, in the Gulf. Uh, it's very hard to to know what people thinks in the Gulf because I don't think, and I agree with Daoud, no one is speaking freely. These are absolute monarchies police states. So uh, it's a challenge to know what the ordinary citizen believe. I do think that some of the service, are, uh, service and pool are reliable in recent years. Uh, there's anti-Iranian sentiment, but they're not crazy about Israel as well. Uh, these things uh, go together. They don't contradict one another. The main threat to those countries is Iran. Uh, but there's also fears of full normalization uh, with Israel. 
Um, do you have a minute to say about the differences about the, the UAE agreement? Very and the quickly, because we're going to have to wrap it up, and I okay. think we Next might time. have just lost out. Yeah, go ahead, but but <laughs> No, I wanted to say that in, in Bahrain, there's a lot of sensitivity uh, because of the demog demography is different. You said there's a, there's a Shia uh, majority of almost 80%, uh, and o Shia and Sunni are now objecting this agreement uh, vocally. Uh, and we have to see if Iran, uh, who used to be in, in the past, uh, used the Shia, some of the, some in the Shia community, uh, to try to destabilize uh, this uh, Sunni minority kingdom. This is my biggest fear. This is a courageous uh, decision by King Hamid, but a very dangerous one as well. Uh, Iran this just today threatened Bahrain. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that Iran will actually try to uh, to do something. Thank you. Well, on that uh, less than optimistic note, um, that's unfortunately all that we have time for today. And I wish we had another hour because I think we could keep going for at least another hour. So. We will invite both of you back and, of course, Dana as well, because I think there's going to be a lot to be talking about over the next several months for sure. I want to, again, thank all of our supporters who are with us on today's call. As you know, your generosity makes programs like this possible. And if you've not yet done so, again, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once again for joining us. Again, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, and to view uh, access our website for recordings of previous briefings. We will be hosting another video briefing next Tuesday, September 22nd, at the regular time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. And until then, be safe, be well. Shana Tova, and to Yoel, to Daraba, to Daoud, Shukran. Erev Tov, thank you so much. Uh, thank see you. you soon, I hope. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.